afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour. Each weekday afternoon, taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, we'll be glad to hear those questions and talk about them here. If you have objections to the Bible or the Christian faith, we'd be glad to talk to you about those as well. If you simply disagree with the host on something, we'd be glad also to talk to you about that. The only thing is, the um, the, uh, the the initiation has to come from you. You have to call. And if you want to do that, we have about an hour for you to get through. Uh, right now, the lines are full with callers who have already done that. But for the next hour, there will be lines opening up. Let me give you the phone number to, to use. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. And we'll go directly to the lines and talk to Jimmy calling from Staten Island. Uh, Jimmy, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hey, Steve. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I called last night, but I had to go to a prayer meeting, so I couldn't stay on the line. And to re-reference, it was on 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, you went over to Ephesians 2, and you were talking about the one new man created in Christ. And I don't understand the point that you were trying to make with that because it's talking about Jew and Gentile because of Trophimus in Acts 20. So he was an Ephesian, that you know. And Paul was writing to the Ephesians to assure them that just because they're Gentiles, you're not estranged from the kingdom anymore. He's making one new man, Jew and Gentile. But I don't know what, what is that. New, point, what, is that me, what is that one new man, though, uh, Jimmy? What is that one new man? That's the body of Christ. Right, exactly. That's, so that's, Jew, and, that's Jew and Gentile. Right, that's what God created in Christ, right. as a body. Right, Yes. Right. Okay, so I, I know you go to uh, sections are uh, John 15 and uh, Romans 11. So mm-hmm. if I could just quickly go over them, the reason why they're cut off, which takes away from the assurance of persevering to the end, now, in John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine, you are the branches. Now, the reason that they're cut off is because they're not bearing any fruit. And the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, faith, meekness, and self-control. And how do I know it's love? Because it goes right on in verse 7, almost all the way to the end of the chapter, talking about love. If you abide in me... And my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, should be done to you. Here is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall be, you be my disciples. Okay. As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. If um, Continue ye in my love. So the reason that they're broken off is because there's no fruit of the Spirit. There's no love. And in Romans 11, it's very similar. Well, wait, let's, stop. Re- let's, let's take John first, then we can talk about Romans 11. Uh, okay. This passage in John 15 doesn't mention anyone being broken off. It mentions in verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is cast out as a branch. So if you don't, right. if you don't remain in him, you cease to be in him. You cease to be a branch in him. And therefore, you are cast forth as a dead branch, and they wither and they burn them. So it's, there's nothing mentioned there about anyone breaking them off. There's a mention of them not remaining. Right. Which we are commanded to do. He commands his but disciples, true, abide in me. That's that's a command in verse 4. So 
it's an obligation that a Christian has to remain or abide in Christ, and those who don't do it will be cast forth as a branch, is what Jesus said. A true, a true believer has the fruit, of, has the Spirit inside them, indwelling them. Yes, of those course. that are in Christ. And two, two chapters before, Jesus said, "I have chosen you twelve, and yet one of you, when he was talking about Judas, and he said, now you are clean, but not everyone. Not all of you." Mm-hmm. Not right. all of you. Mm-hmm. So in John, it was a similar thing. He said in verse 3, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So okay, so, so you're, saying that, you're saying that Judas, so Judas is the Judas one? Was in the, Judas was in the vine, but he didn't continue. He went okay. away. But he was commanded to. Uh, oh, Jesus, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. So well, are you saying the, that Judas couldn't? Are you saying Judas couldn't uh, abide in Christ if he wanted to? No, he's still culpable. He's he's, okay, he's so, commanded to believe. Okay, so I, so I then how is that. Judas? How is Judas then different than any other Christian in that respect? Uh, are we going to be able to go to Romans? Because yes, I have absolutely. an answer for that. In Second okay. Thessalonians, it says, "All men have not faith." You know that verse, right? All right. And faith yes. is a gift. Faith is the fruit of the spirit. Faith is pistis. And if we go to Romans. Um, Romans 11, that will say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, apistis, pistis is belief or faith. Right. Or faithfulness. Or faithfulness. Pistis can mean faithfulness, too. But when you have uh, the alpha privative in front of pistis, it negates it and gives an opposite meaning. Right. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken Mm -hmm. off. And now stand us by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. A true believer will fear. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm deluding myself. And where do we go for assurance? To the Word of God. To, to the Lord himself. Okay, well, so that's so, the bottom line here, because I don't, I don't disagree with most of what you're saying. So what, where, what, how does this lead to a different a conclusion? True believer, a true believer cannot be lost. That doesn't a say that. Be, a, a true believer has the Spirit of God indwelling them. Okay, but those verses don't say anything remotely like that. In fact, they both say, uh, here's, here's the thing. In, in Romans uh, 11, Paul says to the Gentile believers who are grafted onto the tree, he says, don't be boasting against the, the natural branches, the Jews. Uh, he says, because uh, you stand by faith. And he says in verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you, meaning the Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Now, in other words, the life of the olive tree is now in those branches. Why? Because they stand by faith. Okay? In other words, they do have faith, and they do have the life of the tree in them. However, he said in verse 22, uh, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Now, they are in his goodness now. They are experiencing the goodness and the fat of the olive tree because of their faith. They were joined, they were grafted in by, because of their faith, he tells them. And he says, now you need to continue in that, or if you don't continue his goodness, you will also be cut off, just like the unbelieving Jews. So he's talking to people who are grafted in because they do have faith, but he tells them they can be broken off if they don't continue. Of course, I read you uh, also Colossians 1.23 yesterday, and, and Paul says the same thing there. Uh, if you continue, that if you continue is a is a condition, and uh, you know if continue if a true believer's continuing in faith is inevitable, as I think you're saying, then if it's inevitable, then why waste ink 
telling people to continue. Now, if the answer is, and usually Calvinists give this answer, that, well, Paul knew that in the church, not everyone reading it was real Christians, and therefore some of them could follow it. Well, fine. But if Calvinism's true, if they're not real Christians, they should follow it because they're not elect. And uh, you, don't want them, you don't want the elect to pretend to be Christians. You want them to fall away as quickly as possible because they're never going to be saved anyway. Why should they be in there deceiving the rest of us into thinking they're Christians? Paul actually indicates, as does Jesus, that getting the, un, the, the fake Christians out of the church is a good thing. And um, so if he's writing to a group of people, he doesn't know if they're saved or not. And he tells them to remain in Christ. But any of the saved in the group will inevitably remain without being told. And any of the un, non-elect in the group can't be saved because they're not elect, and you don't want them to stay in the group. So what is the purpose of giving a warning like that? No, it's it's not a matter of... Are you still there? Yeah. Oh, okay. I just heard a beep. It's not a matter... We don't know who the, the non-elect are. So we're commanded to command all men everywhere to repent. We're commanded to go preach the gospel to every creature. What the point I'm trying to make is that salvation, God has control of salvation. When he grants eternal life to somebody, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the, by the faith of Jesus Christ. Okay, yeah, we, we don't need to go into a lot of scriptures outside of the, the question because we have a full, full uh, switchboard. But let me just say this, and the reason you heard a click is because I put you off so I can speak for a little bit, and then I'm gonna, I put you back on, as you notice. Um, so the, the question I have is if a person really is uh, in the church, they're either... Elect or non-elect. Like you said, we don't know which ones are elect and which ones are not elect. That's, that's your position. That's what the Calvinists say. But the point is, everyone in the church is either elect or non-elect, if Calvinism is true. And the elect don't need to be told to abide because they will inevitably, because they're elect. And the non-elect shouldn't be told to abide because they can't. They're non-elect. So, in other words, all exhortations to abide, unless they are speaking to people, who can abide or cannot abide, which is the only reason to tell someone to do something, is if they either they can choose to do it or not. Now, the non-elect can't choose to do it, and the elect can't choose not to do it. So when you tell somebody to do something, it's implying that they, they may choose one way or the other, and, the, and you're exhorting them to choose a certain way. But again, uh, the Calvinist has no answer to this. You, you, uh, I mean, I, I know because I've talked to so many Calvinists. Go ahead. Okay. Um, Isaiah 53, Lord, who hath believed our report? Okay, no, 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 no. I said we can't go to all these scriptures. Listen, if you would like to um, go into detail about these matters, uh, more than you can on, when there's a, a full switchboard waiting behind you, um, I would suggest you go to my uh, website, thenarrowpath.com. Go to the tab that says Topical Lectures. And then uh, there's a series called God's Sovereignty and Man's Salvation. There I answer every Calvinist point that's ever been made, pretty much. And um, if I don't answer your points, then you can email me about it or, or call back. But uh, it's not enough just to go from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture as if, this is your, as if I'm paying for radio time for you to give a Bible study. If you want to answer my points, I'll answer yours. And I did answer yours, but uh, you're not answering mine. So uh, you, you really have an agenda here 
which I don't, I don't, I don't mind. I would have an agenda if I were you too, but uh, it's, it simply isn't something I can accommodate while I've got so many people waiting by. So if you want to get to in depth into this subject, I have answered all those points. Go to my website. It's free. All the stuff is free. The website is uh, the uh, series of lectures is called God's Sovereignty and Man's Salvation. If you find that I don't answer your points there, feel free to write to me about them. I, I, Thank you for your call. Let's talk to Rez from the Bay Area. Rez, welcome. Hey, Steve. Thank, thanks for taking my call. I hope I don't ramble. I just I wanted your opinion on something I was uh, contemplating on. Uh, maybe you know about this. There, there's a system in, in the in the brain. Uh, it's called the reticular activation. No, system. I don't know about it. it and the way it works is like this. It is if you bought like a blue Honda and all of a sudden you drive around and you start noticing blue Hondas everywhere because now you have one and it's important okay. to you. I know. I know that's true. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, what I've come to, to realize is the Bible says, seek and ye shall find. Um, I, I've noticed, I noticed in my life the way, the way that I was seeing evil everywhere, I think, was based on this reticular activation system in which you're looking for it, so you're, you're going to find evil everywhere. If you're looking for conspiracies and evil and Satan everywhere okay. and why people but rest, are evil. Rest, rest. What, is, what is your question? I don't, I don't think you're disagreeing with me on anything specific. What is, what is your question? Yeah, so right now in my Christian walk, um, I basically see God everywhere in all people and everything. And I just see goodness that everywhere. That, too, is not a question. That's not a question. That's a statement. Right. My, my question is to you is, is, is that the wrong way to approach my faith? To see some of God in everyone? Uh, I, I see God's goodness in everything, everywhere. I, I don't see okay. evil anymore. I just see Jesus and God and goodness everywhere. And to, to some people, that, that may be like, well, you're, you're closing your eyes to evil. It's yeah. not well, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound very much like the principle you mentioned, where if you've got a blue Honda, you know it's blue Hondas. It, that principle would suggest that if you've got a lot of evil in you, you'll see a lot of evil in other people too, and if you've got a lot of holiness in you, you'll know and appreciate it in other people. I'm not sure if it works that way, but if you're asking me whether it's good for you to never never see evil and only see good, I'm not sure what you're calling evil. I think we should be very much aware of evil in the world, but we shouldn't. Uh, be uh, so alarmed about it that we we lose sight of the fact that God is is working in all things. Now, if you mean you don't see evil in people, uh, you only see the good in them. Uh, that too, I think, is um, I don't think that's a, a, a realistic view. I think that all people have some good in them. Uh, probably, I mean, it's very possible that a, a few, a very small percentage of people may have cultivated evil to the degree that they have virtually nothing good in them left, although they were made in the image of God. And uh, we have to recognize that there's a value in people, even the worst of people. There's a value that God sees in that caused him to die for them and for him to want them to be restored to him. But that doesn't mean there's much visible or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, calculable good in them, there are some people who don't have very much good in them, and there are some people who don't have much evil in them. Everyone's kind of a mixture of both. And if you don't see any evil and you only see good in people, or if you only see evil in people and don't see good, simply either way you're not paying attention to reality. Everyone has some of both. And the reason that's important to see evil in some people is because otherwise you'll simply trust people who can't be trusted on the one hand, 
And another is that you'll never, uh, they'll never, you'll never bring them up on it. You'll never uh, confront them about the evil that they have. If you just say, oh, well, that, that looks like evil, but I only see good in them. Well, then, but God sees both in them, and they will be judged for both. So I think it's important that we, instead of trying to be uh, eternally optimistic or eternally pessimistic about people, that we should uh, simply be realistic. And uh, we should be generous, if that's what you wonder. We should be generous in our judgments. Instead of making harsh judgments when there's too little evidence to condemn a person, we should be willing to give them the best possible uh, view. Uh, uh, we should have the best possible view that the evidence will allow. And that's simply saying that we give them the, the benefit of the doubt. If, if they aren't doing anything that we know to be wrong, um, then we don't assume them to be doing something wrong, uh, if it could be or couldn't be. If, if they might be innocent or they might be guilty, uh, we should assume, you know, we should, I think, by default, give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, I'm not going to call them guilty unless I know they're guilty. And that would be the way to balance that, I think. Uh, Carter from Jacksonville, Florida, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, how are you doing, Mr. Greg? Good, thanks. Uh, I'm straight to the point. I was at a campus, and a dude told me he was sinless. And obviously, I don't believe someone can be sinless. But then I read John 5, 1, where Jesus says, uh, go forth and sin no more. And then I go over to Romans, and I hear uh, Paul saying basically that uh, he doesn't want to do what he's doing. And I'm just I'm in a state of confusion right now, and hopefully you might be able to clear something up for me. Well, I don't think any of us can say I'm sinless in the sense that uh, all inclination to sin and all vulnerability to sin is somehow been uh, removed from me, uh, and I and I'm now beyond sinning. I don't think anyone uh, gets to that point in this life. As okay. long as we have as long as we have flesh, uh, the the world and the devil can make their appeal to the flesh, and and we could possibly sin. Um, but I do believe a person might, without blasphemy, say, I'm not sinning right now. Uh, and I, I, I don't think I've committed any sin since I woke up this morning. Now, that could be true. It may not be true. But, I mean, we're not sinning every second. Um, mm -hmm. And Christians, Christians who are walking with God should not be able to see very many sins in their life. Uh, because when they do sin, they repent of it. And then they seek to end it. And they seek to walk in the Spirit. And, and Paul said, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So walking in the Spirit uh, does uh, give us victory over over sin. But we have to walk in the Spirit all the time. And when we don't, sin still is there. Now, there, if, if you met somebody at a camp or something that said they don't, they're, they're sinless, it's a possibility that they belong to uh, uh, an extreme Wesleyan, uh, you know, uh, movement. Now, when I say extreme Wesleyan, I, I like Wesley. I, I like John Wesley. He was a wonderful, wonderful hero. Uh, but, but Wesleyan theology teaches that a Christian can have a second work of grace called entire sanctification. And at least the older Methodists, the older Wesleyans said, when that happens, God actually eradicates your sin nature and you just never sin anymore. Not that you couldn't, you just don't. And, uh, and, and once in a, you know, where you, if you go into a church that says uh, what God really uh, has in mind for you is to have this experience of eradicating the, the flesh, uh, as it were, 
the sin nature, and then you never sin anymore, then there will be, of course, uh, the the, uh, the implication that this is normative. Christianity is to, is to have, uh, never have sinned anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are people in movements like that that claim that they have had that experience. By the way, Wesley, though he taught the doctrine, he didn't believe he had had it. And Charles Wesley's okay. brother... He didn't believe he had had it either. In fact, I think it was John or Charles wrote to the other and said, I'm not sure I've met anybody who's had that experience, but they did believe it was a biblical doctrine. I, I think it was not a biblical doctrine. I don't think there comes a time when your sin nature or whatever is eradicated and you're suddenly sinless for the rest of your life. I believe that the struggle against sin is a lifelong thing. But I do believe that over the years, as you wage the good warfare, you conquer various enemies in your life, sins. And uh, and so, whereas you were sinning considerably more in the earlier years of your struggle, uh, a lot of those have been defeated, and you're not doing that anymore when you're older. Um, so it is, I, I personally believe it is possible to walk with God in such a way that you don't commit sins. I just don't think anyone walks with God like that all the time, at least no one I've met. And... Uh, if someone does, fine, but I, I, usually what I find is that people who say they're, they're beyond sinning or they don't sin anymore, uh, they usually have come up with their own definition of sin, which the rest of us would probably not agree with. I mean, if you spent time with them 24-7 for a week or so, you'd probably find they were, in fact, doing mm-hmm. some things that you would regard as sin and that probably the Bible would regard as sin, but they don't regard it as sin because they've, they've redefined sin to be within the perimeters of, of what they're actually living out. I often wonder when I meet a man, and it's only rarely have I ever done so, met a man who said he, he's at that point that he doesn't, hasn't sinned for years. I've always wondered if, I liked, if his wife would say the same thing about him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, anyway, uh, when someone says that, I'll tell you this. Uh, if, if I felt like I hadn't sinned for years... I don't know if I would mention that. I, it, it doesn't sound like a very humble thing to say. And, um, in fact, I was taught when I was a child, we all sin many times in thought, word, and deed every day. And then that was tagged on to uh, this. Uh, and if you say you haven't sinned today, uh, then, or that you don't sin in thought, word, and uh, deed every day, then you are sinning uh, the sin of pride by saying that. Well, Mm-hmm. You know, that, so in a sense, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. So if you say you sin every day, uh, then of course you do. If you don't, if you say you don't sin every day, you're sinning anyway uh, by being proud, and so you're kind of stuck. But I don't, I don't believe that's true. The Bible doesn't ever say that we have to sin many times in in thought, word, and deed every day. The Bible says in First John two one, little children, or beloved, I, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. And if anyone does yes, sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he indicates that Christians do sometimes sin, but he's writing telling us not to do so. Now, if he said, if he said, I'm telling you not to sin, but you will many, many times anyway, regardless of what I tell you to do, uh, that would be, that'd be a strange position for him to take. If, if, if I inevitably, no matter how much I don't want to, if I'm going to sin many times without word and deed every day, What's the point of trying not to? It's just going to live uh, a frustrated existence because it's impossible to defeat it. But the Bible does indicate we can defeat sins in our lives. It's just I don't think we probably reach a time in our lifetime where all sin of all sorts is finally conquered in our life, and we don't have any more uh, worries about that. I think this world is a battlefield, 
And it's a spiritual battlefield, that is. And I think we have to fight against um, the flesh and the world and the devil. And we are all capable of falling. And it says in uh, was it first chapter, uh, First Corinthians 10, Paul says, if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. So, I mean, I can say, um, just let me think for a moment. Uh, here it is, three, almost 3 o'clock uh, or 2.30. I don't know that I've sinned today. Uh, I don't know of any. My conscience doesn't uh, know of any. Uh, maybe I have. I, I, I would never. I would never insist that I haven't sinned today. But I'm, you know, I'm not aware of any sin I've committed today. And sometimes, sometimes days go by where, as I review them, I think, okay, I, I don't think I sinned today necessarily. But, but if I go around boasting about that, if I think, you know, hey, look at me, I haven't sinned. Um, well, then I'm, I'm already sinning there. I think in, in pride. But. Uh, it's not necessarily a boast to do a, a fair assessment of your day and say, well, thank God, uh, in this day I've had a f- very few temptations, and the ones I did uh, uh, experience, I, I didn't succumb to them. So I guess, I guess that means I haven't sinned today. But I don't know that it's healthy to sit around thinking about how long it's been since you sinned. I think we just have to be on the alert. If I haven't sinned, now, uh, up to this point today, if I'm correct about that, that doesn't mean I can't sin, <clears throat> you know, before the show's over today. I could. And uh, so we need to always be vigilant. And if a person just says, oh, I don't sin anymore, I think that person is probably redefining sin uh, in a way that works for his theory about himself. Hey, I need to take a break, but we have another half hour coming up. <clears throat> You're listening to The Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're on Monday through Friday. Um, on radio stations all over the United States and in some other countries, too. Um, We are listener-supported. We pay for the radio time. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, we have no commercials or sponsors, and we sell nothing at our website or on the air, but but we do pay out money, and it comes from listeners like you. You can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593, or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. I'll be right back in 30 seconds. Don't go away. Toward a radically Christian counterculture, as well as hundreds of other stimulating lectures, can be downloaded in MP3 format without charge from the Narrow Path website, www.thenarrowpath.com. There is no charge for anything at the Narrow Path website. Visit us and be amazed at all you've been missing. That web address, www.thenarrowpath.com. Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for uh, another half hour so that we can take your calls if you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith or disagreement with the host that you'd like to discuss. The number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. Our next call today is from uh, James in Dallas, Texas. Hi, James. Welcome. 
Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. I'll be quick. I have like three related questions that uh, I'll just ask and then hang up and list your response. Okay. Uh, number one, I've never understood in the Old Testament why God allowed polygamy to such a great extent. And please don't tell me it's for procreation purposes, because I don't think God was that big a hurry to populate the world. Number two, uh, why did God allow men to take 14-year-old brides? I think that was the custom of the day. Never understood that. And number three, after Moses brought down the Ten Commandments, how did that apply to polygamy? And was polygamy still practiced after the command to not commit adultery? And I'll hang up and list your response. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. Um, First of all, why did God uh, permit polygamy? Now, you've already told me what my answer cannot be, so I'm going to have to somehow uh, work around that. Um, You said don't say this for procreation purposes. I actually do think it had a lot to do with procreation purposes, but not, not entirely. I agree that God prefers monogamy. And even though you can't have as many children when you're monogamous as if you had, you know, a dozen wives that are all pregnant at the same time. Uh, so obviously it's not only uh, for procreation per se. However, I think most of the cases that we have any details about of polygamy in the Bible, uh, it does seem to have come about because of procreation. We don't know about every case. In fact, there's really not that many cases of polygamy mentioned in the Bible. My impression is it wasn't all that common. But let me give you a few cases. Abraham, uh, you know, had more than one wife. He had his wife, Sarah, and then he had a concubine named Hagar. Now, why? Why did he take it? Was was he just wanting to lustfully take more women to himself? No, it was actually his wife's suggestion that he take Hagar. It apparently hadn't crossed his mind to do so. And the reason was Sarai was unable to give him children. And it was much more of a tragedy for a man and woman to live and die without uh, leaving something to the next generation for them much more than for us. And uh, they had a shame-based culture. Our our culture has uh, evolved into a shameless culture, so we can't understand why anyone would be motivated by shame or honor but virtually all Middle Eastern and, and, and Asian cultures uh, have a shame and honor-based culture. And it was a shame for a man and woman to not leave any children for the next, uh, for the next generation. I don't know how, I can't, I won't say that God would make them ashamed of it, but that's, that's simply the culture they were living in. So Abraham and his wife, not able to have children, uh, she suggested that he take a, a concubine and have a child by her. And sure enough, uh, he did, Hagar. So that's a case of polygamy that uh, apparently was about procreation for that family. Um, Isaac didn't take multiple wives, but Jacob did. And again, he only wanted one. He didn't want two or three or four. He wanted one. He wanted Rachel. But he was tricked. He was told he was getting uh, Rachel. And, uh, and he was tricked by being given uh, Leah. And uh, he kept his vows to Leah, but he also worked uh, to earn Rachel too, which is the wife he wanted. Now, when these wives began to have competition about who could give their husband more uh, children, some of them, like Rachel was barren at first. Later on, after uh, Leah had six kids, she went barren. 
But they both began to give Jacob their, their maids, just like Sarah had done to Abraham, to have more children when they, they themselves stopped bearing. Now, was this a good thing? I, I don't say it was a good thing or a bad thing. It was simply something that was not forbidden. And, uh, and it was in keeping with the cultural norms that families want to leave as much uh, offspring as possible to the next generation. Now, both of those, of course, were before the Ten Commandments were given. And one of your questions is why uh, did, the, did the Ten Commandments have any impact on it? Not necessarily, because polygamy was not considered adultery. The Ten Commandments do forbid adultery, but not polygamy. Uh, there are many cultures still today that have not been impacted by Christianity, uh, tribal cultures, Islamic cultures, and so forth, that still allow polygamy. Uh, it's not considered adultery because a marriage is not regarded as necessarily monogamous. If a man makes a vow to a woman, he's not vowing. I mean, he, in our culture, he is. As Christians, we do this. But in many cultures, if a man vows to stay with a woman and support her and she'll have his kids, uh, he's not saying he won't take any others. It's uh, Adultery is when you violate your covenant, when you violate a vow. And if you vow that you're going to be monogamous and you aren't, that's committing adultery. If you're in a culture where you can make vows to several women and, and uh, without cheating on any of the others, uh, and that's just how marriage is understood, and that's still true in many tribal cultures and, uh, and others, um, well, then that's, that's different. You're not committing adultery. Committing adultery in the Bible was generally understood to be a man sleeping with another man's wife. If a man slept with a, a single woman who was not another man's wife, he had to marry her. So she became part of his harem or whatever. But uh, he's not committing adultery by doing it. But if, if the woman he's with is another man's wife, that's what adultery was. And, uh, again, if a married woman slept with a, another woman's husband or even with a single man uh, other than her husband, that was adultery. So... That's not yeah, polygamy was not even in the same category with uh, with adultery. So I don't think the Ten Commandments had an impact on it. Now, why were men allowed to marry 14 year old girls? Uh, well, because 14 year old girls in most cases are mature enough to start a family. Uh, the, the fact that that seems uh, evil to us uh, is is very much our own cultural uh, you know feelings about such things. Uh, a woman looked forward, a girl looked forward to being able to be a mom and to have a family and to, and so forth. And once a girl was about 12 or 13, there's a good chance that most of them were beginning to be uh, capable of procreation. And it was just understood, okay, you get to move on and be a woman now. I think a 14-year-old girl today and a 14-year-old boy today are very immature. We live in a society that keeps them immature. In fact, we have a, a strange thing we call teenagers or adolescents, which aren't really children. We, we distinguish them from children, but they're not really adults either. When, until they're 18 or 21, they can't do adult things. So we have this kind of never-never land between childhood and adulthood, which we call adolescence. Uh, the Bible doesn't know anything of that, and neither did many other cultures. We've, we've simply got a situation where our children are no longer children. They're young adults. But we don't expect them to be young adults. We expect them to still be children. And, uh, and so we let them continue to be children until they're 18 or 21. And other cultures just didn't have any of that. They just said, no, you're an adult now. I mean, that's when a Jewish boy at age 13 was, was a bar mitzvah. That meant he now, 
is responsible for his own actions before God. And a woman, a girl had a similar kind of, what is it, bat mitzvah. And uh, so it's, it's cultural for us. For us, a 14-year-old girl is a little girl, and we keep them little girls. We don't let them be grown-ups, and we don't let men, boys that age, be grown-ups. And, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure why, because they are generally sexually mature, and by keeping them single, we are, in a sense, putting them through a period of time where they're sexually mature and not able to sexually perform or do anything. And I think that that has, uh, that has not been good for the purity of a, of a society. And, uh, you know, we always are sure that our culture is much more enlightened than ancient cultures, because after all, we wouldn't let 14-year-old girls be married in our culture. Yeah, but our culture hasn't proven to be anywhere near as sexually uh, stable and pure as uh, Jewish culture was, or, or cultures that did allow uh, young adults to be adults as soon as they became real adults. Uh, so anyway, I'm, I don't want to marry a 14-year-old girl because 14-year-old girls, well, for one thing, I'm married, but if I was single, I certainly wouldn't want one because they're not grown up in our society. 14-year-old girls are almost never grown up, nor are boys. Sometimes they're not very grown up when they're 17 or 18. In fact, now our culture keeps people juveniles sometimes till they're in their 30s, uh, which is a shame because they waste, uh, you know, what, a third of their lives as, as adults not doing adult things, not being productive, not, not living the life of an adult. And I, I'm not sure. I, I certainly wouldn't say that's good for society. I'm not going to condemn it and say it's sinful, but I just don't think it's healthy. And, uh, you know, if a girl has spent all her life as a little girl looking forward to being a wife and a mother, and she turns 12 or she start, reaches puberty, you know, she's looking for a husband. I mean, she's not out looking for him. The matchmakers or parents or someone else are usually keeping their eyes open for him. But, uh, I mean, she's ready. And uh, so that was that's true in many cultures, not, not ours, obviously. So we can't really judge ancient cultures or Eastern cultures uh, that are doing things that uh, they've done for you know, millennia uh, for, for having different culture than us. After all, our culture has not proven to be superior to theirs in every respect. Certainly not in the area of sexual morality in recent uh, centuries. Okay, let's talk to Viru in St. Paul, Minnesota. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hey, Steve. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, uh -huh. I just want to make one comment and one question. Okay. I was hearing your podcast on uh, January 10th one, and uh, there was a person named Max Epist, and he was talking about... Uh, there were evidences about Hinduism, all that. So I was a Hindu for 19 years, and by God's grace, uh, he saved me when I was in college. And uh, um, so there are no evidences, not even a, uh, religious documents. Uh, any can exist in Hinduism, even until 600 AD, 700 AD, even those are not available. So I just want to make that as a comment. Okay. Um, my question is, um, I... I'm sharing the gospel with some of my friends here, and uh, the repeated question that I get is, you know, when I share about uh, Christ having uh, divine nature and uh, human nature in one person, uh -huh. and he's a sinless uh, man, and when he died, his uh, human person died, but not his divine person because God cannot be dead, um, and he resurrected after third day. 
and because of his sacrifice and by believing in him we all can be saved of sins now the question i get is like um, how is that possible how can he separate uh, divine nature uh, human nature and whenever he wants he can separate that uh, that's one question and second part of that question is if anybody born into this world theoretically as a sinless uh, person uh, which is not possible but theoretically if it is possible and if he lives a sinless life and if he die for human sins will that be same as christ sacrifice okay uh let me i'm just jotting down some notes for myself so i don't forget what you said okay um i i don't think that a human being even if they were sinless could die for the sins of another human being and have that count uh it's because jesus was not just another human being uh but was uh, you know god divine in flesh that his death could be much more efficacious uh e- even for all people than any one man could i i mean I-, i could possibly in some situations die in the place of someone else and-, and rescue them from immediate death by taking that on myself i mean there's lots of situations where that could happen um i i don't i haven't faced any but some people do you know the guy who falls on the grenade and uh, and saves his friends from being blown up uh, he he gives his life for them but that's that's not the same thing as uh you know atoning for their sins uh, that's a different thing their their life is rescued but that's all uh, uh you know a man even i i suppose even if a sinless man could if god would agree to say okay i'm going to let your uh, i'm going to let you die instead of this person here who's a sinner Uh, a life for a life if you want to volunteer yours for his that's fine yeah but no human being could die for all all lives uh, you know i'm not worth that much my life isn't worth the lives of everybody in the world and so therefore the sacrifice of my life uh is very far from you know covering that kind of uh that kind of indebtedness um uh, so i mean i think because jesus is god in the flesh it's god was in christ reconciling the world to himself it says in second corinthians 5 and so you know it, god is in a sense offering himself which also answers uh one of the cynical statements that atheists sometimes make well the bible makes god out to be a child abuser he's he's you know he killed his own son if you know if we did that we'd be considered to be barbarous well but the bible it's not that simple it's not that god just killed his own son god became a man and lived as uh the human son of the divine god and gave himself for us now of course that comes to the point of how can a person be god and man how can that happen i don't know i i've i've never done it i've never been god or and man at the same time in fact nobody has so i have a feeling that we don't have any analog for that so we we can use but the point i would make is uh if we know who god is then we don't ask how could god do this if and unless it's of course morally wrong if if we say well how could god do such an evil thing that that's a that's a reasonable question we have to ask you know you know how could god do a thing that seems contrary to his nature and i don't think he does i don't think he ever does any evil things but the point is that if we say how could he do this um hard to understand thing or this seemingly impossible thing 
Well, that's that's right in God's wheelhouse. He's, you know, that's the reason God is God and we're not. He can do things that are impossible for us to do. And he can do things that probably are un, impossible for us to understand. Like, you know, whenever I have a problem with my computer and I take it to the Apple store, and they, you know, the, the, the genius bar there, they just, you know, hit a few keystrokes and fix what I could never have fixed. I think, I don't understand what he's doing. I have no idea how he did that. What, do you, what, you know, in other words, there's people, and this guy's probably 20 years old, who can do things I can't understand. If, if a 20-year-old kid can do things I can't understand, it should not be surprising that God, who created the universe, the atoms, you know, all the laws of physics and chemistry, uh, you know, all the angels, all people, all life, uh, it shouldn't be surprising to say, yeah, he can do a few things uh, that we don't understand. In fact, he can do anything uh, that is not inconsistent with his uh, character. And we have no reason to believe that for him to take on human form and to be, as it were, a God-man living among us, there's no reason to believe that's contrary to his character. And so it's just a matter of his competence to do it. And God is we would say omnicompetent means there's nothing he can't really do if he sets out to do it. So, I mean, when people say, well, how could Jesus be God and man? Uh, I would simply say, well, well, I don't know. I don't know. Never, never seen it done before. It's the only case I know. You know, if we, if there were many examples of this, we might be able to find a common denominator and, and analyze it and so forth. But, uh, you know, we just, this is just what God did this one time. And, uh, you know, if people say, well, that's just silly to believe that. Well, they're probably going to believe any explanation that would be given as silly, too, because they don't believe in God. I mean, that's why they're that's why they're saying it's impossible. They don't believe in God. Well, if someone doesn't believe in God, then any explanation you give is going to have to leave God out of the reasoning, which is impossible. You, when, when God is the one who does something and you're trying to explain that to someone without mentioning God or including God in the picture, uh, well, you're just you're on a fool's errand. But if you say, well, wait, wait, when we say that Jesus was had a divine nature and a human nature, he was God and man, we're talking about something God did, okay? And unless you can tell me some reason why God wouldn't do such a thing, then there's no reason to think he couldn't. There are some things I think God wouldn't do, but I don't know of any that he can't do if he wants to. And so I would just say these, these uh, critics are... Uh, they're being foolish. I mean, they're, they're pretending like they're accepting the fact that there's a God and asking to see how he did this. But they don't believe there's a God. If they did, they wouldn't ask that question. Yep. Okay. Thank you so much, Steve. Really appreciate Okay, brother. It. Thank you. Hey, I appreciate your call. Thanks for joining us. Uh, good talking to you. All right. Our next caller is uh, Ryan from Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Steve. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh -huh. um, I had a quick question. I heard someone once say uh, he was a convert from um, Islam, and he had studied the Bible and uh, the Quran side by side for about a year, and he became convinced that the Bible was um, the true uh, revelation of, of God. And he made a, a comment that stuck into my head. He said that the way that you can know that um, the God of the Bible is the true God is because he tells you the beginning from the end. And he was basically referring to a fulfilled prophecy. Uh -huh. And I had been going through your archives under the evidence category, and um, a lot of the conversations came up with Max and uh, Max Atheist, for those who are familiar with him. And you had mentioned a couple prophecies in the Old Testament um, that were fulfilled, and you basically posed the question, how how could um, 
if if God is not real, or uh, as an evidence that God is real, um, he told the future of exactly what was going to happen, what nation was going to overtake another nation with a time period, with who was going to be the king, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you could um, rattle off maybe the top three or four in a uh, way that I could, you know, spend more time going to look them up, because I feel like that is perhaps the strongest evidence for the reliability of the Bible is prophecy. Yes, I, I think it is. In fact, Jesus himself said this to his disciples when he was telling them what they could expect in the future. He said, I tell you these things before they happen, so that when they do happen, you will know that I am he, or that you will believe. So in other words, the fulfillment of predictions is one of the best proofs there is that God is, is God. And, um, the, you know, the, the, here's what I'll tell you. I can give you some great examples, but the skeptic will simply say, well, I don't believe that was written before the events. That's what they can okay. do. Now, now they, they can do this without any evidence whatsoever. They'll just say, well, I mean, obviously to predict such things beforehand would be impossible. So obviously the prophecy was written after the event and, uh, and pretended to be written before the event. Now, they have no evidence. And we actually do have evidence for the timing of many of these prophecies being uttered. But... But, uh, but if they just decided it can't happen, they're just not going to accept it. The, one of the greatest prophecies of this sort is in Isaiah 44, where, uh, and the first verse of 45. It's, it's the closing verses of Isaiah 44 and the opening verses of Isaiah 45, especially verse 1. And there it mentions that Cyrus, who was the king of the Persians, would, uh, would let the Israelites go back, would let the Jews go back from their captivity in Babylon, to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, which actually happened in 539 B.C. Now, the thing is that Isaiah wrote this over 150 years before then, and it mentions Cyrus by name as the one who would do it. Uh, it says this in Isaiah 44, 27, who said, God says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, and the gates will not be shut. You know, about a hundred... Uh, actually, Cyrus was not born for another 150 years after this was written. And it was when Cyrus was 50 years old, which is, again, 200 years after these prophecies, that he actually did conquer Babylon. And the interesting thing is, he did so by drying up the river Euphrates. He dammed it up because the river went under the huge walls of Babylon at a certain point, and it was the, most, the only vulnerable place that Babylon had. They had huge walls. And so Cyrus dried up the river, and his, his armies marched uh, in the dry riverbed and conquered the city. But the, the, the walls had huge bronze gates, uh, in the riverbed to prevent just this kind of thing from happening. The only thing is that history tells us, and you can get this from secular history, because actually the New Testament, the Bible doesn't mention this particular fact, except in prophecy. But actually, uh, the gates were opened. Somebody opened those gates. Generally, historians think that uh, Cyrus had sympathizers inside the city who opened the gates, which may be true, or they may have been supernaturally opened. We don't have any vested interest in saying how they were opened, the main thing is that Isaiah, 200 years earlier, said those gates would be opened. And he said that God would dry up the rivers to allow this to happen. So 
Uh, it says, I will dry up your rivers in verse 27. It says the gates will be open in chapter 41, verse 5. And, and uh, you know, verses 28 and, and chapter 45, verse 1, both mention Cyrus as the guy. So, I mean, this happened precisely as predicted. And the only way that, a, a, you know, a skeptic can say, oh, that, uh, that, that can't be true prophecy, would be to say oh, those, those verses have been written after the event. The only thing is there's no evidence that they were. And uh, there's very what strong that, evidence that or, they were not. What's that? Yeah, what is the, uh, the strong evidence you're referring to that they were not written after the event? Well, the, what, what the skeptics say is that chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah were written uh, late, after the time of Cyrus. And, uh, but that the first 39 chapters were written by Isaiah in, uh, you know, uh, 700 B.C. or something like that. Now, uh, 700 B.C. is a long time before. Now, they simply decided that that later section of Isaiah doesn't belong to the same author, doesn't belong to the same book, and they did so only because it predicts things that a man living in Isaiah's day could not know about unless he had divine inspiration. They've already decided that 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 doesn't exist. And therefore, they say, well, obviously, these later chapters were written later. The problem is that those later chapters, uh, in many respects, are quite cohesive, with the first 39 chapters, they have the same vocabulary, some of the same special words that are only in Isaiah or, or hardly ever anywhere other than Isaiah. Uh, they have much phraseology that resembles the, the later chapters. And all the manuscripts of Isaiah have, including the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you know are a couple thousand year old scrolls, they all have the whole book together, which means if Isaiah wrote the first 39 chapters, the evidence is he wrote the last 27 chapters too. Now, almost all scholars, even skeptics, will allow that Isaiah wrote the first 39 chapters. But they have serious problems with him writing the last 27. But there's not the slightest evidence that those later chapters were written by a later person. Anyway, I'm sorry we only covered one, but that's a, that's a really good one. We're out of time for today's program. You've been listening to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. We are listener-supported, and uh, you can write to us at this address, The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730. Temecula, California, 92593. You can also donate from our website, though everything's free. Just take it if you want it. Uh, or you can donate. It's thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow.